Youthscape podcast, the podcast for Christians who work with young people. Welcome to another edition of the Youthscape podcast. I'm Martin Saunders. With me, as always, the multi-talented Rachel Gardner. She can sing, she can dance, she can podcast. (laughs) I love it when you intro the podcast. I feel like this chair that I'm already filling quite neatly, I'm like exploding in it. Like, yes, I will claim all of those. We've also just had a tea break. Welcome to the Youthscape podcast. We are so excited that you are joining with us today on this series where we're thinking about how to have some big conversations with young people about really important stuff. We love young people. We love opening up spaces for them. And and you guys, let's be honest, you may not be regular Youthscape podcast listeners. I've got a little hunch today that we might have some extras (laughs) who are like, this is poor. Already, they're like, what? What on earth? I mean, the sound quality is excellent. Well done, producer Dave. But, um, but really, what are they prattling on about? Well, don't worry, it's not much of us today. Um, but we have got a guest we're particularly excited about, and that may be why you're so listening. Excited. So it's not often you get to meet your heroes, except for Rachel. She gets no. to it every time we record the podcast. Oh yes, no, they say that. They say don't meet your heroes, but I deny that. I absolutely loved meeting our guest today. Yeah. Who, can I just say, this is a big shout out to him, Shane, you're awesome. Uh, But when I jumped on the little squad cast, I was expecting people. I was Mm. expecting people who set up things on his behalf and I didn't meet his people. I don't know if he has people. He must have people. I think he just has friends. I think that's how he does life. He does life with friends. And it was just him sorting out his own tech, getting his own headphones. So through this amazing moment of me being like, I'm meeting Shane Claiborne. The first thing I had to ask him was, Shane, 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 can you go and get some headphones, please? I can't hear you very well. I mean, that levels the conversation straight away, doesn't it? So what what an amazing, I mean, I gush a lot in the interview, but he is... Absolutely. We'll get Dave to edit most of that yeah. out. <laughs> Just but take it all you, you, So this this uh, series of the Escape podcast, remember, you can go back and listen to the other 240 million episodes <laughs> that we've got. Whatever. How many is it? Loads. Dave, come on, Dave, hold up fingers. Dave refuses to speak on the podcast. We so can't tempt him. It's a lot, isn't it? It's, it's so you can go too back and, much. You can go back and listen to we're, we're too much. Yes. Go back and listen to the last 200 episodes if you like. But this season, we're looking at big conversations that you might want to have with uh, young people. Difficult conversation, complicated conversations, but really important, prescient, the conversations that need to be had. Um, and so we've had some brilliant episodes. And I do encourage you to go back and revisit the first uh, maybe six episodes uh, of this uh, season. Um, but this one, uh, mm. we're going to be talking to Shane. Shane Claiborne's one of those people you could talk to about any number mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. But actually, we wanted to talk to him about the really difficult um, sort of topic of money and how we use money, but also how we view money, how we view wealth and disparate wealth and how that affects uh, social circumstances. And so it is, we've already recorded it. It's a brilliant interview. Yeah. Well done, Rachel. You drew... Oh. Gold out. Oh, no. I sensed the gold was on the surface. Oh, it was all there. But you I could just, have dropped the ball. I could have just said, hi, Shane, how are you doing? And we'd have got the same you did, stuff. You did a great job. This. You did yeah. a great job. Um, but just a little caveat before we before yes. we start. So I interviewed um, Shane. This was before the recent um, horrendous shootings in America. So actually, we don't talk about those. And that's why we don't, because actually they hadn't happened. But um, I, I think you might have seen Shane on um, social media doing a lot around those topics recently so you can catch up with what he's getting involved with at the moment. But this is what happened when I, in a cold corner of a little house in Blackburn, got to chat with the wonderful Shane Claiborne. Your name. I mean, I know your name so well. I was. Um, I've just discovered that you and I are very similar age. So I feel that actually my discipleship has had your voice in it. And um, books like Irresistible Revolution. Lots of people will know you for that book. 
Um, you're an incredible activist. You agitate, um, particularly around the death penalty. Um, your brilliant book that you co-wrote with Tony Campolo, uh, Red Letter Christianity. And I'm, I think reading that was for the first time that it really dawned on me. And many people listening to this, I guess, that the following in the way of Jesus has to make a difference to how we live. Um, and I just think it's extraordinarily wonderful that you've made time to speak to youth workers, particularly based in the UK, um, who probably have grown up like me, reading your stuff, watching your life from afar and being incredibly inspired by your radical action and your humility. But I'd like to talk to you today, Shane, about money. Oh, you're so kind. You're so, and, oh, you're so, and you're so easily impressed. <laughs> Great. I mean, this is such a treat to meet someone that I've um, I've just admired for so long. So, Shane, I don't know about you. We're going to talk about money. We're gonna, our conversation today is how do we help to have conversations with young people about money? Big conversations. Do you carry any money on you? Do you are you someone that always has a little bit of cash on you, or are you like completely cashless? And what, right now, do you have coins? Do you have some dollars? Oh man, look at this right here. Booyah. Yeah, I got He's some. Got some dollars on him right. So I want to, I want to, that's okay, dive, dive straight in with that. I know you talk about so many things and you're passionate about so many things and you are the leader of, at the moment, of the, the, the Simple Way in Philadelphia. Could you maybe start by telling us, for those that might not know, what, what is the community? What is the Simple Way? Well, sure. So, I mean, a couple of things are, first of all, I grew up a long way from Philadelphia. I grew up in East Tennessee, down south, and what we call the Bible Belt. And that's where I fell in love with Jesus. Um, I began my sort of spiritual walk there as a a young person in the 1900s, back in the 1990s. <laughs> um, and But I also began to see some of the contradictions in the church, you know. Um, I mean, heck, I grew up Methodist, and John Wesley, he was radical when it comes to money. He said, if I find money in my hands, I get rid of it as quick as I can before it corrupts my heart. So that's why I keep the money over there on my desk, not in my pocket or too close to my heart. But um, I, I, you know, I came to Philadelphia, and when I was in college, uh, a group of homeless mothers moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. And that's where everything really changed for me is these families out of real desperation. There were 3000 families on the waiting list for housing. Uh, they had nowhere to go. And so they moved into um, this, not just any abandoned building, but an old Catholic sanctuary. And they started living there. And what we read in the newspaper, it made headline news and it said, church resurrected. And it told their story of how they had brought this abandoned space back to life. But then it ended by saying that the Catholic officials uh, had given them an ultimatum of 48 hours. And they considered that they were trespassing. And if they weren't out within two days, they could be arrested. You know, something about that just didn't feel right to us. And so we went down and got involved. and. On the front of the cathedral, the families had hung a banner that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Uh, so we joined that struggle, and that the simple way was born out of that. It was originally a student solidarity movement with these uh, mostly homeless mothers and children. But then we started reading about the early church in the book of Acts, you know, where it says that no one claimed any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And then, and then it says, and there were no needy persons among them. So one of the things that struck us about the early church is that they ended poverty by having a radical new vision for how we hold our possessions, uh, holding them in common. Um, it also says that the um, offerings of the church were put at the apostles' feet and they were distributed to people as they had need. Uh, so, I mean, literally the church offerings, uh, we don't do that much anymore, <laughs> but they were meant to be shared 
with uh, especially the people who are most in need. And so we caught that vision, you know, and um, ironically, the kind of vision, the fresh vision for church and for community for us came in the ruins of this old abandoned church. So I think there's, you know, all kinds of symbolic pieces to that. But I got married in the old abandoned church. Many of those families are still dear friends of mine to this day. Those kids that were born there, you know, are grown up and uh, and we've been forming the simple way for the last 20 or so years uh and and it started as an intentional community you know a group of 20 year old friends of mine sharing every dollar that we made and trying to figure out how to change the world uh you know uh and, and then now over the years it's we're, we still got some of that fire and we've we've got new ways of sharing it's turned into more of a village so we've got a dozen or so properties on the same block. And we've got community gardens and an emergency fund that we still use to try to share money together. So I, I live across the street from the first house that we ever bought and we're fixing up abandoned houses for the last 20 years. You've been sharing this story so passionately for many years and it is so inspiring that the movement that you were part of founding as a student, as a young person, you are still heavily pursuing. I mean, that's, I think the authority that you have to speak just comes from that. But, but Shane, as you've been sharing that message over 20 or so years, do you find that younger generations are more attracted to the radical nature of it, but struggle with the resilience to pursue that? Like how, how have you perceived young people over the years engage with that call to live radically differently with their money and how they spend their money and how they engage with materialism and consumerism? What's been your observation? Well, I mean, the gift of youth, uh, I know this personally, because when we started our community, you know, we're like 19, 20 years old. And um, the gift of youth is that no one has convinced you that anything is impossible. And and so when it comes to things like ending the death penalty or doing something about the environmental crisis, um, I mean, the old excuses just don't work, you know. Um, I think a lot of movements that have changed the world have been led by young people. And even right now in our country, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, March for Our Lives, the, the so much of the movement around gun violence, the environmental movement, there's a lot of young people that are rising up. And they're very aware that the world that we've been handed, that they've been handed, um, is really, really screwed up. And it's very fragile. and um, you know, frankly, I think that part of why we're losing young people in the church is that not because we made the gospel, it's not that we made the gospel too hard, but we've made it too easy. And we've reduced Christianity to a doctrinal statement. And young people want a revolution. You know, they want to change the world. And uh, as important as doctrines are, what I believe about Jesus is that God didn't just send a doctrinal statement. God came down in the flesh and showed us what love is like and disrupted the status quo, you know, cross-cultural boundaries that were never uh, crossed in his time. And and so that that invitation was to join a revolutionary movement. And one of the things that Jesus said was, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And I think young people are seeing people like, you know, um, Jeff Bezos and some of our billionaires that are making like, I don't know, it's something like $3,000 a second. <laughs> or something just unimaginable money, right? And you've got masses of our world living in poverty, while a handful of people have more than you can even conceive of in your brain. I mean, three people own the same amount as 50 countries combined. Less than 100 people, the, the billionaires and millionaires, own the same amount as half of the world's country. So you start to look at that and go, this doesn't make sense. You know, people call you an idealist when you're 20 years old for saying stuff like that. But idealism or unrealistic optimism is believing that we can sustain a world that's living into the current patterns that we're living into right now. So I think young people see all through all that facade and they want to imagine a different world. And that's exactly where Jesus shines so brightly is the kingdom of God, as Jesus taught it called it was, you know, subversive language, but uh, taking the kind of imperial language and saying, what does it look like if God was in charge, if God's reign were on earth, if God's dream 
we're realized in this world. And we're not just a hope for that happening when we die, but we're to pursue that while we live, bring heaven to earth, not just wait on heaven when we die. So that's the kind of gospel that I think resonates with a lot of young people. And I mean, there's plenty of challenges. I'm sure we'll talk about those, Rachel, with social media and some of the things that I think can become barriers to relationships if we're not careful. But there's a lot of fire and uh, revolutionary love that I see out there. Well, let's get let's talk about. I mean, you've mentioned Jeff Bezos, and as we're recording today, Elon Musk has bought Twitter. So we 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 are in a world where the young people who are finding their feet, finding faith, working out how to live radically Christian, radically Jesus lives, are seeing a world where if you want to get anything done, you need money. Like the whole conflict at the moment, Ukraine, Russia, and the way the West is responding, is a lot to do with money, isn't it? Where do we get our energy from? And, and Elon Musk, now the richest man in the world, controlling the largest messaging sharing platform in the world. So, so as young people look at the world and think, I want to change it, I want to do it differently, but they're seeing a world that is absolutely in the grip of those who have money, because that means power. How are you finding that you're re-agitating this next generation to, to that radical, subversive world. And, and you mentioned social media, which is brilliant, isn't it? TikTok, the, the power and the status, which is not so much about money then, but still this allure that you can only change things if you have enough kind of, of what the world says is in your bank account, status, power, money. How are you finding you're reshaping that message? Or do you need to? Wow, there's a lot to unpack in that. And I, I guess I would say that... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I do long questions. No, it's so good. I, so this is what where I, I would uh, look to Jesus for some guidance. And I would say, here's what happens. Uh, how God changes the world is God leaves... This is what the whole story of Jesus is about. God leaves all the comfort of heaven and joins the struggle. God leaves all that kind of omnipotence and power. I mean, you know, Jesus is God, but, you know, is being born into human flesh. Not just any flesh, but brown skin, Palestinian, Jewish flesh. Like, that's the body that God comes into. Born a refugee, because they're, you know, born homeless because there's no room in the end. Came from a town called Nazareth where people said nothing good could come. So this is how God comes into the world in Jesus. And it's a reminder to me that we are often very conditioned to think that change comes from the top down. But the story of, of Jesus is about God coming from the bottom up, God, change coming from the bottom up. And it's an invitation that all of us have easy access to, <laughs> you know, like you can't always have equal access to the top, but you can move towards those who are suffering. And that's what Jesus does. And 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 so I think that um, there's a way of thinking about change, how social change happens, that is that we've got to have access to power and money and all this stuff. But the the, the model that we see in Scripture I mean, really consistently, even in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and certainly through the movement in the New Testament, is that God changes the world in ways that we might not expect. You know, a homeless baby comes to lead us all home. A barren elderly couple, Abraham and Sarah, are the mother and father of a nation. You know, like like this is a, a shepherd boy with a with a you know, slingshot, it becomes, you know, so I think, I think God is like kind of challenging our notions of power. Um, and the, the movements that have changed the world have often been from the margins and they have been led by young people. I mean, you got to remember Jesus died when he was 33 years old. I'm not going to throw it all out there, Rachel, but I think that he was younger than we, we are now, you know? And so like that, it was a youth movement. Um, the struggle against uh, segregation and racism in America. Martin Luther King was really young when he was killed. The movement was a youth movement. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm energized by the environmental movement, by all this. And, and I think social media has a role to play. 
but it's got to be seen as a tool in our toolbox that we don't put everything we've got into one tool and think, you know, if this, if Elon Musk, I mean, good heavens, I have no idea what's going to happen to Twitter. I certainly don't think that one person should be deciding whether or not the former president of the United States can be reinstated to Twitter. Right. And I think it could change things, you know? Um, So I, I have concerns about that, but like, my hope isn't in Twitter changing the world. You know, my hope isn't um, in, in millionaires changing the world. Water boils from the bottom up, you know, uh, and, and it boils slowly. It starts to steam. You start to see little things that pop up and then water begins to boil. And I think that's uh, kind of how social movements are, too. And, and certainly young people can keep turning up the volume for love and for mercy and for, for change. As you were chatting then, I just had a recollection of a a really wonderful story. And I can't cite it. I'm really sorry. But it, it happened in the UK like about 500 years ago in a particular church where a, a vicar was told that he needs to gather all the riches of his church and the kind of landowner was going to come and take it. And the landowner was meaning, you know, the golden candlesticks and this is my I'm Church of England you know that's that's my tradition um and of course this wonderful church leader gathers all the community the poor you know the teenagers and he gathers them all into the church so when this landowner rocks up to to gather the wealth of the church they're all there and as you were speaking and talking about water boiling from the bottom up I was just thinking about the teenagers on our estate here who um um very you know come from very deprived communities many of them arrive in all our projects, come to our home completely filthy um, and have no autonomy when it comes to money. You know, they don't have any money. Their families don't have any money. They have a local authority that doesn't care for them. They don't have bins to put their rubbish in. Nobody clears the knives and syringes off their streets. Um, and um, I'm just wondering if these young people are our great treasure. <laughs> they are our great treasure in, our, in this nation, but we don't see them as that. But also, how do we, youth workers, you know, those that are passionate about this, how do we talk to these young people about money, something they don't have, but something that is also a mindset they're desperate for? You know, they want to have money. They want to get off this estate, get out of this place. Um, how, how do we have those big conversations? What, where could we start as youth leaders? Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to talk about that. I just want to say one other thing as you were thinking about the the young people there and the, you know, the needles and stuff on the street is we had a campaign in Philadelphia that was sparked by some of our young people that kept finding heroin needles on the street. And the campaign, you know, it was one of those things that kind of you talk and it evolves and becomes something and it became a campaign called Need a Little Help. And we actually bottled up the needles and we delivered them with quotes from our young people. And we gave them to our city officials, our mayors, our mayor and our council people, our health commissioners. And uh, and the whole campaign was need a little help, you know, and we were saying that our young people are just as precious as the young people in a different zip code. And, uh, you know, it's it's not okay. Uh, to to see lives deteriorating, but also our kids uh, growing up in that kind of environment that this is a health crisis. And we saw an emergency, you know, response from our city. And and, uh, so we still got a lot of work to do. But I, you know, I think over and over, young people keep inspiring the activism that we do. Um, And and, um, so let's talk about money. You know, I, I think that one of the the challenges for all of us when it comes to money is not just focusing on the stuff itself, but on our connection to the people who are suffering from the inequities and the injustices. Um, I think what happened in the early church as they began to share possessions was that they faced that inequity firsthand. And they saw some of us have more than we need while others of us have less than we need. And if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we've got to think differently about that, you know? And um, so it wasn't that sharing stuff was a prescription for community like communism or socialism, but sharing stuff became a description of what love 
translated into that loving their neighbor meant holding their possessions with open hands. And nobody taught me that economic lesson better than one of the kids in India. I worked in, you know, Calcutta, India with the missionaries of charity and Mother Teresa when she was alive. And one of my jobs became to throw a street party for the kids, the young people. These were like some of them 10 years old, 12 years old. They were homeless. They lived on the street. And Mother Teresa said, these kids are very precious to God. And so we, you know, we need to convince them of their worth and their dignity. And so we threw them a big party and we'd have this meal and everything. But one of the kids told me one week it was his birthday. And then he almost started to cry because you just, you saw how alone he felt on his birthday and wasn't going to get any presents. So, you know, I, I snuck off and I got him an ice cream cone and I came back and I gave this kid this ice cream. And his impulse was to share it. He yelled at all the other kids, we've got ice cream. He brought them all over and he said, everybody's going to get a lick, you know, and he passes it down. And this is before COVID and I'm trying not to think about germs and all that stuff, you know, but anyway, like, but that kid's impulse was, this is too good to keep for myself. And isn't that a holy and beautiful instinct, right? To say this, this ice cream is too good not to share it. Right. Um, and, and, One of my heroes, Dorothy Day, she said, the best thing to do with the best things in life is to give them away, is to share them with other people. But it's all about relationship. And I think one of the tragedies in our world is not that rich folks don't care about poor folks, but that rich folks don't know many poor folks. And it's a relational disconnect. It's not just that we have a compassion problem, but we have a proximity problem. We're not always in relationship to each other. And I think what, you know, youth workers uh, have an opportunity to do is to bring young people together across cultural and economic barriers and um, raise the question, what does it look like to be community? What does it look like to be born again? That word can get kind of cliche. But what I think Jesus was inviting us to do is to reimagine family. That if we are born again, then we take care of each other beyond biological family, beyond nationalism. Uh, But we're trying to love everyone as if they were our own sister and brother or our own mother and father. And that's a radical invitation to love uh, beyond you know, the kind of cultural limitations that would teach us that this person matters because they're my family. Uh, we're to love bigger than that. So, you know, I, I think that that's really where a better vision comes from. And the economics will flow out of that. You know, I think we'll go, why do I need two coats in my closet if there's someone cold on the streets? Um, why do I need money, uh, you know, a bunch of money for the future when people don't have enough money for today? And I think then we can begin to really try to live more faithfully, but also to live more lovingly. You know, even even that story, Rachel, I told that story of ice cream to a group of kids. And this one kid in the middle of winter threw his winter jacket on the stage and said, give it to the kids that need it. And there's that innocence, right, that I think like uh, he knew he had another jacket. You know what I mean? And so that's what we're trying to do, I think, is just have like love and compassion and sharing be our impulse rather than the kind of hoarding and 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 stockpiling of stuff for ourselves while others don't have what they need. Oh, I was really moved to tears hearing those stories. So powerful. I was thinking, Shane, that um, it's such a good deep dive to do, isn't it? Because we can be generous with things that maybe we don't think we'll miss. But the question is, can we be generous with the stuff that, as you say, has got a hold on our hearts and actually is being a barrier to our relationships and model, mo- being a church that recklessly models that to emerging generations, that, um, but also recognises that, as you rightly say, there's something about the beautiful God-ordainedness of adolescence. And there will always be a sense in which younger generations, younger disciples will grab what they're being passed on and just stretch beyond us to something more radical. So my last question to you, Shane, is um, as you look at, you know, emerging generations, so Generation Alpha, I don't know what we're calling them really, but those that have, you know, really been shaped by global pandemic and also all the stuff that goes on intersectional, you know, injustices that they experience. 
what are the signs of hope? What, what are those radical leaps that, that you're like, actually, this next generation are going to take the call to the simple way even further? What, what are you hoping to see? What in your spirit do you see? I mean, I have every faith that you'll be up there right at the fighting edge of the battle area anyway into your 90s. You know? Oh, gosh. But yeah. what are you hoping will go beyond you, beyond in this next generation? Well, this is a great place to to land things, you know, I, 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 because I think that there are plenty of challenges. Um, I mean, the pandemic and the way that we've had to be um, uh, sort of physically isolated um, has fostered a lot of creative things for folks to do with Zooms and, you know, different virtual stuff. But that coupled with the growth in social media and TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, it's created a lot of people looking at pixels. And I think we've got to remember that we're called to be in community and to be in real relationships. And I think social media can foster real friendships, but it can also be a place to settle down with virtual community and virtual relationships. And I kind of think like, it's like having virtual food. Uh, if you only have virtual friendships, just like if you only eat virtual food, you're going to get hungry. And if you only have virtual relationships, I think it still leaves us longing for more. Um, so there are some amazing opportunities, though. So I, I just want to share one closing story was when um, uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. That was a, a really historic moment for our country. The Black Lives Matter movement really spiraled out of that and Trayvon, Mer uh, Trayvon Martin's murder. And, you know, but in the middle of that, uh, I took one of the young people in my neighborhood and we went to Ferguson to march in the streets and to grieve the loss of Michael Brown's life. And, um, but here's what was wild. We had just done a call on Skype at the time. Some of y'all don't remember Skype, but Skype was a thing. We called on Skype to Afghanistan. And we were talking to a bunch of young people in Afghanistan. And when we went to Ferguson, the kids in Afghanistan asked us to take a sunflower and to put it at the base of uh, the memorial to Michael Brown, because they were all grieving that in, in Kabul, in Afghanistan. And you just begin to see how the world has shrunk. And the Black Lives Matter movement looks different in Palestine than it looks in Ferguson. Um, but, you, you know, I think young people are very in touch with the pain and brokenness of the world. And there's some some um, things that we should be mindful of, not to be too kind of consuming of social media that we can't process grief and compassion. But there's also something beautiful to say, like, man, we can begin to mobilize in solidarity across the board in faith-based movements that are fueled by love, that are addressing issues of injustice. And we can lead the church out of the buildings and into the streets. Because that's what happened during the pandemic is we couldn't really be in buildings much. So there were all kinds of church happened in the streets. It happened, you know, in the site. So, so I think there's some beautiful opportunities. I even think of Jesus when he was being crucified, the veil of the temple was ripped open. And I think it's this wild, beautiful, symbolic image, not just that the, the, the barrier of kind of the church and the walls and all of the sanctuary, the holy of holies, not only uh, is God tearing that apart, but God's inviting us outside of that, right? To get out of the buildings that God is in the streets. So I think young people can lead us, you know, in that way. Uh, but we also got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I think there's a danger in a young generation that wants to be kind of spiritual, but not religious, that wants, sometimes wants Jesus, but not the church. You know, they see the contradictions between, um, you know, Christians and what Jesus said. But I want to say that don't give up on Jesus because of the embarrassing things that Christians have done in his name. And, you know, our hypocrisies are big, but God's goodness is bigger than uh, uh, the, the, the mistakes that we've done. Now, I think it's also a wake-up call to the church that one of the biggest barriers to Christ has been Christians who look so unlike Christ with the things that we say 
and the ways that we live. So we need to do better. Um, but I also want to invite young people, just as Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world, that you can be the change you want to see in the church. Uh, don't wait for old people to change institutions, like just like Jesus did. Have a respect for those. I mean, Jesus went to Passover. He went to synagogue. He, you know, I mean, he was Jewish and he was also God. But he, you know, like Jesus is participating, calling the church to the best of who it was, while also not allowing the gospel to be colonized by the religious community and inviting people to get into the streets. He was healing people with mud and spit. He was pulling coins out of fish's mouths. I mean, he was doing crazy stuff in the streets, in the community. And so God is not limited to the sanctuaries. God is in the streets. Uh, but God is also redeeming all things. So good things can come from the compost of Christendom and new life can spring out of the ruins of a church. I mean, I can say that because literally our community came out of the compost of an abandoned church in North Philadelphia. So keep at it, y'all. Keep living the words of Jesus. Thank you. We, we began by thinking of that lovely image of the church, your community being in that building that was falling apart, ancient ruins, and we ended there, which feels so beautiful. In Isaiah, it talks about these oaks of righteousness that will re rebuild the ruined cities, and the young people on our heart, they are the ones that are the oaks of righteousness. Shane, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know how many thank yous I want to put there for you to know, for this to really oh, go it's, in. Oh, it's so sweet. It's, it's a gift to be with you. Thank you. And uh, let's hopefully we'll be together sometime. Yeah. Thank you, Shane. Yeah, bless Bye. you. So I, you know, we don't say this often, and no disrespect is meant to anybody else who's been on this podcast but that is gold that is one of the mm. best interviews we've ever had on this podcast so so well done and thank you shane because uh, i know you're obviously listening uh but uh <laughs> I, I mean one so many things we could pick out that he yeah. talked about one of the things that i love that he he said and he has said it in lots of other places but every time he says it it really strikes me it's that um young people don't give up on christianity because it's we've made it too difficult but they actually, they might walk away from it because we make it too easy. Mm. And we bring all these assumptions to young people that they want the easy life, mm -hmm. that they, they'll only join, you know, the Christian, they'll only make the Christian consumer choice if it's as appealing as all the others. Um, and actually that's, that's nonsense. And he, he's challenged that beautifully there. And I think around this issue of money, like young people know they are growing up, they've been handed a fundamentally broken economy. Mm -hmm. Like the world that they live in economically does not work. And that's why they have to pay to go to university, you know, and lots of other things. Um, and so they live with that reality. And it's not that they just want to be all right. Mm -hmm. just, well, as long as I'm all right, that's not, that's not them at all. They're like, they, they love the idea of a different, a better way of being involved in a revolution of some kind, you yes. know? So, so we, we, we have that. That's what Christianity offers. We offer a revolution. Um, and, uh, and so often we're like, oh, but will they like that? Yes. Should we make it just a bit more, you know, easy? Yes. And surely adolescence is a time where if you're going to be most captivated by something that feels dangerous to adult mainstream status quo, you know, the cultivated, domesticated church life, that's the time you're going to get it. And we, we need the, we need young people to be leading us in this. Absolutely. And to making us feel profoundly uncomfortable. I wanted to ask you a question though, Martin, because I think just listening back to Shane talking, he is a prophetic voice. I mean, he is a classic prophet in this. This is not something that he's only just started talking about. He was talking about this when no one else wanted to listen and no one was wanting to pay any attention. I didn't get him in on any platforms. I didn't win him any points. Um, what, what's our, where's, where does our prophetic voice as leaders among young people, where, where, where do we sense that we're calling them to be prophetic leaders in this? We, we spent a lot of time in this season focusing on the spaces we create to have conversations. The danger is that can feel a little bit therapeutic as in 
it's just about the space we create here. How, you know, how do you see your role as a youth pastor in agitating, calling the prophetic out of young I people? I sat up then, did you see? You I did. sat up in my chair. <laughs> you got your Pentecostal uh, kind of because, shoulders back. Because I want to be a bit provocative. Yes, do Feel it. free to shout me down at this point. But I think young people will only begin to express the prophetic voice that they undoubtedly have and, mm-hmm. exp- and, and that comes through them naturally. Um, if they, one, feel that there's permission mm. for them to express that, you know, that, that's one really important thing. And two, they see it modelled. Yes. Um, and so, so, yes, sometimes you have young people sharing the prophetic voice out there in culture and sometimes they shout it uncomfortably from the back. But mostly, most young people who might have something brilliant to share actually won't do that unless they know it's safe for them to do so and they're actually allowed to do so. And they've actually seen somebody else step up and and be the adult who models the prophetic voice. Now, here's the provocative bit. Um, Shane Claiborne is wonderful. He's American. Mm -hmm. You may have noticed that. Uh, Nothing nothing against Americans, per se. Uh, But... Um, it's interesting that, you know, when we were, when we were talking about the prophetic voice that we wanted to bring in on this issue, Shane was the name that came to mind and we didn't actually, we we weren't sure whether he'd do it. He very graciously agreed. Um, but does that, does that imply that we couldn't find a brilliant British prophetic voice? Mm -hmm. Does it imply that actually there aren't loud people standing up and saying things against i mean let's be honest we haven't quite got the sort of trumpian Mm. kind of experience in this country but it's not in some quarters it's not far off like we've seen some really uncomfortable and awful things happen in the world of politics um where our leaders and the character of our leaders has been has been called into question public or should have been and has been not not always from within the church though and so you would imagine you'd hear more voices in this country standing up and saying this isn't right and and trying to speak truth to power and i don't think we hear enough i don't think we hear that much and i think that's why we keep turning to shane claiborne and because he's in a different context that's much safer it's fine for us to express our, our outrage at the nra or our outrage at trump but when it's close to home, mm. it's there's much Oof. more cost involved, Whoa. isn't there? <laughs> yes. And so who are the people who are standing up and saying, this this is fundamentally not right. Like what is happening here in this country, the way that COVID response was handled, yes. the way that our, our leaders behaved in a time of national crisis and afterwards. You know, who's, who's standing up and saying, I realise by implication I'm now doing that. Mm. So that's the end of my appearance on this podcast. It's been a great run. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, but yeah. shout me down, Rachel. Tell me there are great prophetic voices. Well, I think there are there are prophetic voices here and there are people that are just getting on with it. And I wonder if that's slightly the British way as well. I, if I think of people like Sam Ward, you know, the Eden Network, I think about, you know, individual people that I know that others might not know who just are living a radically different, you know, they are not being blinded or blindsided by people in power and dominance and they're they're seeking to make a difference but i but i do agree with you that the line between honoring those in authority and actually being a little bit colluding because we think it might in the end get us an outcome that we want so we're willing to put up with behavior that is frankly despicable disgusting immoral but it might mean that we get that kind of I think I think we we can see that in the states I could name a load of things at the moment I think wait wait a minute white evangelicals with your gun culture and the Roe v Wade stuff like what are you guys playing at like where is your concern for human flourishing in there but there would be exactly the same stuff happening here where leaders are almost being prepared to kind of shut up and put up because it might mean that actually we get that thing through and so I that's think the, that's the holding that's your nose question. thing yeah we do see that here we do yeah. see um, Christian leaders. Let's let's make it about the leaders. Uh, Christian leaders who who effectively hold their nose yeah. and say, "We'll just we'll, wait this one out. We'll turn away from this <laughs> yeah. and ignore this thing over here because it's going to be better for the church. It's going to be better for our potential persecution or, or whatever." Um, but there's the other the other side of it, which is um, not wanting, not saying something because. To say something would mm. cause a negative yeah, outcome for us. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a there's a, a thought that we might lose something by speaking out. So if I speak out about this thing, I won't be 
in anymore. I won't be invited to speak at that thing. I might lose my social media following or my book deal. Now, look, let's be honest, there aren't a lot of book deals in the Christian subculture in the UK now. But um, but but actually, like, is that I think that's a thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm I guess I'm. I'm I'm implying rather than saying this, so maybe I should just say explicitly, but I think we need way more of our leaders in this country to speak out about the rank injustices that we see in our culture and our society, our politics, but not just our politics, like big societal issues like climate justice, often very late to the party on that, um, you know, racism, uh, some of the stuff around Me Too and 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 poverty. And, and poverty. It's yeah. so much yeah. that it's costly to speak out about that we just find our way somehow never actually coming out and saying stuff. One of the reasons why I'm so keen on our uh, present Archbishop of Canterbury is that he does yes. speak out and he yeah. gets a lot gets of a stick lot of for it, doesn't yeah, he? He does. You know, and people say, stay out of politics. How can you stay out of politics? No. Jesus didn't. No, we we are we are political. It's about it's about ordering our, our lives together, isn't it? So absolutely, I think it's a wrong... It is interesting, isn't it, at the moment, the conversations about where faith is allowed to be prophetic and have that space. But I do wonder if this, as well as having these conversations with young people, it is paying attention to... I love that that permission giving not because we are the gatekeepers of what they can and can't do but we recognize all the layers of power and dominance that might mean a young person feels I want to say this I want to speak out about this but I've no idea if I'll be shunned or rejected or allowed back in or whether others will agree with me or not so being being adults that can be adult enough to say let's listen to the to the voice and even how a church spends its money what it spends its money on how it treats its staff how you know all those things those smaller things on a much more closer level to home that's what i love about shane is that he is as at home you know at the nra prayer breakfast you know shouting the stuff absolutely as he should be as he is on the street you know feeding local people and, and starting and i just love that that, that in his thinking those two are the same thing they're two of the same thing and I think that's I see lots of beautiful grassroots agitation prophetic stuff um I wonder what it would look like for us here to have some stronger movements as you say of real social engagement that says enough is enough and to do that with integrity over many 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 years that's the challenge for us yeah it's brilliant we haven't talked an awful lot about money um, in, in the, I mean, I know Shane talked about it a little bit, yes. but it is, it is a difficult conversation to yes. have with young people around money. And we acknowledge that. And it's very why different. Is it depending di- why on, is it difficult? Do you wh- think? Well, I think it's different. It's a different conversation yeah. depending on where you are in the, in the country. So if you are, uh, in a part of the country where there's lots of wealth, mm. then it's about how you use that well, how mm-hmm. you steward it, what it might be. And entitlement, to, yeah, all those sorts yeah. of issues. What, where you're, I know it's not a very helpful term, but blind spots might be. Um, If you're in an area that has very, you know, very little Mm -hmm. money, then it's a whole different range of conversations. Mm -hmm. And and how you, you know, how you do simple things like manage money and manage to, you know, the church, the role the church could play actually in helping to break the cycle of poverty. My goodness, we've seen some amazing work from CAP and others around that. Um, But that is a that's a difficult and complicated conversation because whether you have a lot or a little, like money itself, you know, Jesus said some interesting things about money. You know, it can um, it can captivate us. It can become our treasure, can't it? Because it allows us to have stuff and status and access to things. So, yeah. so it's it's money's complicated, yeah. and we have to recognise that with young people. And if you don't develop healthy habits around money when you're young, it's much harder to have healthy habits that include generosity yeah. and not being dominated by your stuff and not aiming your life towards the accumulation of things. Um, it's much easier to do that. It's much easier to do that if you've done that from from youth. It's much harder mm. if you haven't. Mm, absolutely and and where to begin on some of these conversations is always I, I come away from my interviews with guests thinking gosh I've been a youth worker for 20 years 20 years people and if I was to ask myself when have I intentionally had some of these chats sometimes I don't know but I'm thinking now what would it look like for me to have these conversations with young people they are remarkably generous 
the, the young people I work with, but it was my birthday. I had little presents on the doorstep and I know these young people have no money and they come from families with no money, but there's money knocking around in jam jars, in tins, and these young people chose rather than to get sweets themselves or whatever they might have done with it to, to get a plant for me. I think one young person picked some flowers from someone's garden. That was lovely. Ended up my doorstep. I loved it. But such generosity. What would it look like to fan that generosity into flame that... Yeah, that to live lives that are generous and put money in its right place. Challenge for me too. So friends, if you joined us and have stayed this long, we've loved having you join our podcast. Do tune in every week for some more amazing episodes. But that, in case you think that's the end, that's not the end. Not the end. Yeah, I was going to say, Rachel, what are you doing? (laughs) I was about to wind it down. You were. Can we wind it back up again? Please. Come back up. Wind it back up because we've got something very exciting to tell you. Yes. So, about the summer. Um, yes, it is about the summer. So I realise I've just I'm I'm modelling literally the thing I was just talking about, which is that a load of people now have just heard me say what I've just said and probably won't want to come. But no, for those will. that are still with us, they love it. Um, this summer we are having the first ever satellite yes, event for young wait. people. It's five days uh, in a field in Peterborough, which is. As exciting as it's no more exciting it is than it more sounds. Exciting, yes. Uh, uh, from the 9th to the 13th of August at the East of England Arena, that's the showground at Peterborough, um, and it is not too late to come along. And actually, if you book for this, uh, if you're listening to this kind of before the end of June, uh, it's not too late to save ten pounds on every single ticket. Uh, bring your um, entire youth group bring a few um, bring some just some people that you met we'd love to have you we're going to spend five days exploring what it means to put God at the center of your life all year round um, we've got some amazing people coming to to share and speak like Rachel Gardner I don't know how we managed to book her <laughs> she's speaking Andy Croft Miriam Swanson um, and I hope Governor B and a host of others a host of others. Um, and it's great. You check it out at, at the website, wearesatellites.com. If you don't want to bring a youth group to satellites this summer, but you'd like to kind of sneak in and see what it's like, I've got another way for you to access the event this, this year. Um, you can join the teams that make it happen. So you can volunteer um, and you can experience um, uh, the, the full glory of the event without young people. Um, which I don't, except there'll be lots of young people yes. around. Um, you can't and, ignore them. Uh, if you have young, by the way, if you have young people who are aged 16 to 18, they could be on team if they wanted to, um, which is a free ticket, or they can do a half and half thing. All the info about that is at www.wearesatellites.com. We would love to see you this summer. Come this year. Don't come next year. Well, you can come next year, but come this year as well. Don't put it off. Don't tell yourself you haven't got time to organize a group. You could send that email right now. And before you know it, you'll have a bunch of young people saying, just what I always wanted. Fantastic. I feel inspired. Yes. I'm going to be there with well, the youth group. thank goodness. We can't wait. Oh, yes. <laughs> but I'm bringing young people as well. You are. Which we're so excited about. I'm going to drive the minibus. <laughs> so I will arrive frazzled, so will they. But we're going to have fun. So see you there, friends. Thanks for joining us. We love you lots. And until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.